Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. Malaysia censorship bends unexpectedly as Beauty and the Beast gets a release. Udine Far East Film Festival announces its first titles. Ten Years Travels to Thailand. Overheard Travels to Korea. And for our films this week, I hop into a review of Vampire Cleanup Department and we look at the live action remake of Japanese anime classic Ghost in the Shell. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting in sunny South Florida and sitting at his reviews desk on top of a tachikoma is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey, Paul. What, what's a tachikoma? That's a little shout out for fans of the uh, Ghost in the Shell series rather than the movie. <laughs> they, will, they will catch that reference um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that property today but before we get into that how have you been sir we've been out for a couple weeks uh, yeah yeah um yeah it's been all right but you, you, you're gonna have to like start making up things where i can understand if you're gonna say i'm hiding somewhere <laughs> <But anyway. laughs> sorry that's a that's a, a bit of a deep geeky reference so i do apologize yeah um, deep geeky yeah paul surprisingly deep yes, geeky yes. references and, uh no uh, things things uh, yeah yeah so things are well um i came back from the, the states last week and uh of course you had your spring break holiday as well but we kind of spend a bit more a longer time than expected sort of uh as recovering i suppose yes uh i had some real life events pop up that you know because we were on spring break having a good time and and sometimes life is good and sometimes life is the suck and by life i mean people because sometimes people can suck and that's all i'm going to say about that um because uh, it's not appropriate to get into the real life event that kind of sidetracked me for about a week, but we are back and we are here to do a show. Um, did you do a lot while you were stateside there in California? Well, I went there for a friend's uh, wedding, so it's an old middle school friend, so I saw a lot of uh, old friends, and then I, I um, of course, saw my niece and my nephew, and I watched a few films. Um, actually, I only, I only watched five films. When I was in the states, so I was a bit disappointed in myself, mm. but um, but but I did you know I I did a lot of work because you know I was away for a bit and you know the magazine wait uh, work doesn't wait so I did uh, a bunch of work and um well a, a little I guess a professional announcement is that I also got to work on my own website uh, Asia in Cinema. Um, I officially announced it's launched uh, last week when we were having our bye week, but actually um, I've been working on it since um, before I went to Osaka. So it's been sort of about a month or so in the making now, and uh, it's finally launched. And um, yeah, I'm real proud of it. It's a new website that um, is sort of like what I did at Film Business Asia um, with Asian film news, uh, business news, casting news, box office, things like that. Um and yeah, I've been I've been sort of just tweaking it and writing stories for it and uh, just spending a lot of time with it. Yes, indeed. You can uh, check out our Twitter feed or also head over to the Comcast site. Uh, I've added the link in there for the site as well. Or just put in the URL that is uh, asiaincinema.com, right? Yes, that's right. You say it five times fast. Uh, you know what I'm trying to do. And also Beetlejuice will appear. Yeah, yeah. Better him than Candyman. So uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Before we get into our news, though, uh, because we did technically miss our last episode, which I would have wanted to do last week, I want to take a little bit of time to catch up on the tale as old as time uh, and some brief thoughts on Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Did you get a chance to see this, Kevin? I did. I watched it uh, this weekend, actually, thankfully, just after I got over my jet lag. So uh, I actually managed to stay awake through the whole thing. Um, but, Paul, are, are you a big fan of Beauty and the Beast? I'm a huge fan of, of that sort of run of Disney animated films. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Disney in general. 
Um, but yeah, you know, going back to the sort of that run that started with The Little Mermaid and, and going forward, uh, I had some trepidations going into this, and I kind of think those trepidations played out. Uh, how about you, sir? Um, well, I'm trying to figure out the right um, um, Beauty and the Beast lyrics for this, but, you know, a tale as always time might not be my cup of tea, <laughs> or true as it can be. <laughs> um, it's okay. I mean, the thing is, um, um, I wasn't, uh, I remember kind of liking the original, but I haven't seen it in, in quite a while. And let's face it, I mean, it's one of those Disney princess, you know, fantasy tales that, you know, was never going to be my cup of tea. It was not made for me. And I completely accept that. And knowing that, I, I I was okay with it. Like I was actually entertained by it. Um, it was very grandiose in in such a way. I even mentioned in my Twitter that it's so like gratuitously grandiose. It's actually the most expensive musical ever made, by the way, a hundred and sixty million dollar budget. That they should have just shot the whole thing on IMAX cameras in seventy millimeter with one hundred and twenty frames three D, just to be like just for the hell of it because it's so like gratuitously gratuitously like grandiose with the computer you know graphic and the castle and the the expensive production design and everything like it's just so grand you know yeah i think uh, for me the when the film worked is when it was kind of mimicking the animated original and when it didn't work was when they decided they needed to add about 30 minutes of additional stuff to it that didn't appear in the original, including songs and backstory and and things like that. Um, but I guess my biggest disappointment was just in terms of the designs. Um, because, you know, one of, one of my film teachers used to say, you know, with regard to animation, there are things you can do in animation that you just can't do in a live action film. Now, this was, you know, back in the 90s um, when he was talking about this stuff. And that's kind of changed today because of computer-based animation. But, I mean, I just found the models they used for Cogsworth and Lumiere and, and some of the other castle characters um, uninteresting, uninspired, and not all that great to look at. Um, you know, performance, yeah, actually, voice performances exactly. aside, I mean, I think comparing how they rendered Lumiere here con compared with his 2D counterpart in the original, I think the 2D counterpart had much more vibrant energy and characterization um, than than what we see here. So that was probably the biggest disappointment for me for this film. No, I I completely agree with you there. Like it 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 was animated for a reason. It's because you know you have talking candlesticks right you have talking clocks and and to put any kind of expression on them without being creepy or going to uncanny valley it needed to be that sort of traditional 2d animation and and you know relying so much on computer graphic you might as well have made an animated film yeah. and you're right it's just trying to you turn these real life objects into talking objects and you just take out all the expressions out of yeah. them because they, you know, it's never going to be as animated. As, I mean, that's why they call it animation. It's not going to be ever as animated as the the original characters. Yeah. So you're right. It, I, it just, I just didn't find a reason for it to exist while watching it. I think part of that too, for those who've studied animation, you know, you'll one of the first things you learn, um, you know, with like Disney Technique or Warner Brothers, you know, cartoons, Bugs Bunny, and that stuff is the idea of squash and stretch squash and stretch and and that really gives the vibrance to a you know a 2d character like roadrunner or mickey mouse or tom and jerry and they don't really utilize that when it comes because they're so i think focused on the realism and trying to bring the realism out and they they lose that sort of dynamic energy that the squash and stretch hand-drawn animation can bring and so it's different i, I i'm sure that some people will really love this and I think you know much in the way when we talk about Ghost in the Shell in a little bit um, similar similar issues there you know going from an animation to a live action that's heavily induced with uh, a shot of CGI that if this can film can do anything if it can bring like a new audience you know younger audience to go and see the original then I think that's a great thing right um, if it can lead people back well, that's what I'm wondering. Like, are kids going to be able to go back to the 2D animation once they've seen this? Like, once they've seen this sort of quote-unquote 
real thing? Are they ever going to go back to 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 seeing you know old school animation? Yeah, I mean that'll be that'll be interesting. I know that for me, I I you know as a film lover, I don't have any problem going back and seeing um, you know older variants of something that's been done as a modern remake. But who knows with the tastes of kids today? But uh, one one final point I want to get Kevin's thoughts on because this. You know, aside from the film itself as a sort of a remake and the casting and everything, the big hubbub was, as we talked about in our news last time, and we're gonna t- Kevin's going to talk about it in the news this week, that there was a couple... I, I saw three distinct scenes, right? Um, and in some of the news articles that I read, they pointed to one, two, or all three of these scenes as, you know, the problematic places with regard to allusions to you know alternative sexuality perhaps if we, want, <laughs> yeah. if we want to say it like that <laughs> you know it was so much of a blink and you'd miss it moment in each case i mean in one case it was like part of a lyric in a song in another case it was like an action that happens to this extra and then at the very end you know it's a very like two second shot during a dance sequence between um josh gad um his character as um, uh, LaFou. LaFou. And, you know, again, another sort of extra who I was in the second scene. It was, it, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, I don't know. Are people that sensitive now that it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like arms up in the air and the world's on fire. And I just, I don't know. I mean, is it because it was Disney? So that was the big problem. I mean, what was your take on that, Kevin? Well, in that case, actually, I counted four, at okay. least, or four of them. But I think two of them were in the same same musical sequence. But anyway, um, the thing is, I I I kind of liked it. I mean, because the director, uh, Bill Condon, he Bill Condon, um, uh, he made Dreamgirls, and I think he's also uh, uh, gay himself. And and um, but the whole thing that you turn it into a live musical, yeah, live musicals do appeal to to um, all sorts of audiences, um, and and I kind of like that he added that bit of flamboyancy into it, the, the whole flamboyant flamboyant sort of aspect into it. I kind of appreciate those little moments, and you're right. I think people are more sensitive because, well, the only reason that it got brought up was because Bill Condon brought it up. He said he gave the character a, a interesting gay moment, and that's the only reason. No one actually saw the film, actually saw the film and raised a, a, a ruckus about mm-hmm. it. And people who protested probably didn't see the film, um, except in Malaysia, you know, where the censors had problem with. It. But then they let Power Rangers pass, even though there was a pretty clear moment where somebody talks about sex, uh, her sexuality. Um, so it, it's just a bit. Yeah, even even the Malaysian censor said if it if that mo if the director or if there wasn't so much publicity about those moments that they probably would have missed it as well. Mm. So so I you know for a Disney movie, yeah, sure, I guess it kind of went a bit further than one might expect. But yeah, for us, you know, progressive left wing uh, trash, you know, <laughs> politically correct trash bags, I guess we think it's no big deal. Mm. But uh, for Disney, I mean, for Disney, I guess because they have to, they have to be as inclusive as possible for all tastes, then it becomes a big deal for them. All right. Well, if you saw Beauty and the Beast and you had some thoughts on it that you'd like to share with us, do drop us a line and let us know. All right, for now, let's head over to our news section, and I'll throw the talking stick back over to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. At the news desk, uh, well, we're starting with Beauty and the Beast again, because it looks like somebody bent it unexpectedly. Um, Did they bend it like Beckham? <laughs> we, we could go further down this row, Paul, and then, then we'll get banned from the uh, right-wing... Uh, media media, so let's not go there (laughs) um yeah actually so no it's (laughs) the one that bended is malaysian authorities because they ended up allowing beauty and the beast um to show in malaysia uncut so the film was released this past week 
um, originally, I think censors asked for about four minutes of cuts uh, because they said, uh, which includes a song, because apparently if you cut out a line or two or two of those moments, then the entire song doesn't make sense. So they even asked for the entire song to be cut just to just, you know, for continuity, because they care about that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, they asked for the cuts and Disney refused to make it. And then for a while, it, it looked like the film wasn't going to come out. Um, we had reported this in the last uh, episode, I think. But it seems like the authorities had changed their mind and let the film pass uncut after, uh, I guess, it became a, a global news. Um, uh, but now the film uh, has played in Malaysia and opened number one at the box office this weekend, this past weekend. Um, and uh, it got it was uh, shown with the PG-13 rating, which I guess is OK, because I think um, the new the new film is a bit scary for kids anyway. Um, so, you know, it's not a totally terrible thing. And let's face it, Beauty and the Beast is going to um, uh, um, actually, I think, appeal to uh, older generation or more nostalgic people um anyway or more adult audiences anyway so um the film came out and huge hit in malaysia and um all swell with the world again hollywood wins again in all right words. hooray and uh you know congrats to malaysians for being able to get out and see it under from under the thumb of the censors yes and 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 you know let the hollywood um beast take over its box office <laughs> once again <laughs> anyway so that's great um, all right, next news item. Uh, Udine Far East Film Festival, uh, one of our favorite film festivals, and I guess I have to speak for Paul, sorry. Uh, it has announced uh, its first titles. Um, the festival will be held on April 21st until the 29th. Uh, it won't be announcing its full lineup for another week or so, I think. But um, they have um, uh, announced uh, a few of the first titles. Uh, most of them Hong Kong titles, actually. So, uh, so they include uh, Pao Chan's Love Off the Cuff. This is the third film in his series in the the romantic comedy series. Uh, it will have its world premiere at the Hong Kong International Film Festival next week. Um, also includes uh, also produced by Pao Chan, the Neo Clipper Romance, star- starring Zhou Dong Yu and Joseph Chang. Yes, this is the same Neo Clipper Romance that uh, Derek Zhang and Jimmy Wang directed a short film adaptation of. Uh, this is the feature film version. Uh, it's directed by uh, cinematographer Jason Kwan, who worked with uh, Pang on uh, Aberdeen and Love, uh, Love in a Puff and Love of the uh, Love in a Buff as well. Uh, also, June Robo's Lana's Die Beautiful, um, which I think had its world premiere last year in Tokyo. Uh, Herman Yao's uh, Anthony Wan horror thriller, The Sleep Curse. Uh, Jackie Chan's Kung Fu Yoga, and also the Taiwan musical 52 Hertz, I Love You. Um, and these films are in addition to a, uh, a retrospective that the film festival has already announced. It's a, re- as a retrospective called Creative Visions, uh, Hong Kong Cinema 1997-2017, which includes um, films from the last 20 years of Hong Kong Cinema to commemorate the 20th anniversary of The Handover. Um in addition to familiar titles like After This Our Exile, It Man, Inferno Affairs, Kung Fu Hustle, it also has the international premiere of the newly restored version of Fruit Chance Made in Hong Kong. Udine um, actually started or initiated this this idea, this whole project, the restoration project. Um, and uh, now it's finally finished uh, here for its 20th anniversary. And uh, it's going to have its uh, world premiere at the Hong Kong International Film Festival. But um, it will also be shown in Udine um, on the big, big screen. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. All right. Excellent. I wish I could be there. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's going to be cards. great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be making my first visit there, and I really look forward to seeing Johnny Toaster Mission on the big screen for the first time in something like well, since it first opened, because when I watched it in San Francisco back in the day. But um, yeah, I really look forward to seeing it again. All right, very good. You'll maybe be possibly doing recording an episode from there. We'll see what we can work out schedule wise. Yes, I'll definitely bring my mic, and uh, let's see what we can do. All right, next item, um, 10 Years, the controversial omnibus um, that got in got Hong Kong into a lot of trouble, uh, is going to Thailand. The Hong Kong original makers of the, uh, the Hong Kong version, uh, specifically producer, uh, has been apparently approaching other countries, uh, filmmakers from other countries, um, about doing their own versions, and Thailand will be the very first country to get 
its version of the film. Um, like the original, it will be a collection of five shorts that will imagine Thailand 10 years into the future. The uh, um, project has just started its crowdfunding uh, effort uh, yesterday, I think. Um, the five directors are, and pardon me because I'm not good with Thai names, um, which is Sasana Tian, who did uh, Tears of the Black Tiger, um, uh, Pichapong, Mira um, Seteku, who did Cemetery of Splendor and, and Uncle Boomy, uh, very famous Altair. Of course, everyone knows him. Um, Adida Asarat, uh, another art house director. Chukia Savriko, who did 13 Beloved and Love of Siam, a bit more commercial director. And visual artist Chula Yarnun <laughs> Siri Foy, Siri Po. Sorry, sorry if we have any Thai listeners. Um, the film is a co-production between um, Hong Kong's 10-year studio, who produced the original film, obviously, and uh, a new outlet in Thailand called Films for Free. Um, they're trying to raise $200,000 US dollars uh, on their Indiegogo project page. If you look up 10 Years Thailand, you can support the project. Um, and the crowdfunding campaign will go on for the next two months. Um, and uh Using a quote from the crowdfunding page, our hope is that 10 years Thailand will create dialogue and reflection in the Thailand currently in the midst of great change and uncertainty. So right now, the of course, as we all know, Thai Thailand right now is uh, has a lot of turmoil politically, um, not just in the monarch, but also uh, the military. I think right now there's still a military military junta still running the country, I think. Um, so there are a lot of political uncertainties at the moment in Thailand. So I think this film will go into that. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what it's kind of like the uh, the politi- politicized version of the Korean film, Miss Granny, right? Each version, each country does its own version and and um, and sort of play into uh, the country's um, um, circumstances. I think it's going to be quite interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially with regard to, you know, the passing of the previous king. Uh, when did he? Uh, I think he passed in t- 2016. And the current king, his son... Um, I'm not going to attempt to to mangle his name, but uh, <laughs> the, the short the short the short version is Rama ten. I think he's the tenth Rama in that line. Um, he's he. I mean, they've they've made him the king, but they haven't had a coronation yet because I think they're still doing. You know, they're still mourning and doing. You know, they have a period of ceremony and cremation and stuff that has to be done. I think, and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see if like. Because they they have restrictions on what they can do, and you know that's like they can't say anything in art or in other forms of media. You can't say anything against the royal family, but I do know he's not a super popular king like his father was. Well, no, in the other he was there for sixty years, and and they really revere him. And you know the new guy is always going to have trouble, right? I mean, look at the Daily Show. <laughs> <laughs> you know they still they love right. John Stewart so much. No one's been able to accept Trevor Noah. Um, but you know, I guess and, and and I guess also kind of film thing. Um, they revered the king so much because, well, because the king is actually quite a multi talented individual. Um, I just saw a film when I was in Osaka. I, I watched a film called A Gift, which I think was made. It was released in December. Um, so after the king's passing, but it was um a omnibus of uh three films. Um based on songs that were composed by the late king. Apparently, the late king was a very talented songwriter. Uh, in fact, he actually even had an award from uh, an honorary prize from Yale for his musical skills. Um, so they revere him so much that, you know, and, and it seemed like the most normal thing that, yeah, our king writes songs and they're really great songs and we're going to make this film that pays tribute to his songs. Um, so they, they clearly, they, they quite like this guy or they quite like the king. Um, and uh, yeah, it's always going to be hard for the new guy. But, you know, it, it's not only that, like I said, it's the, you know, you got the military government still going there and, and freedom of speech has been limited. Um, and it, it seems like a ripe time, I guess, for for uh, it's in, you know, indie filmmakers to to make a film like 10 years. All right. It'll be interesting to see what they put out. And final bit of news, um, similar to the 10 years news, um, Overheard, the Alan Mack and Felix Chung film, the one with um, uh, what, Lao Cheng Wan, Louis Ku and Daniel Wu. Um, it's getting a Korean remake. 
Um, it's going to be directed by Choi Dong-hoon, who did The Thieves and Assassination. He's one of uh, South Korea's most bankable filmmakers. Um, and and uh, apparently, the story will be about 80% different from the original, which is a bit weird, because why would you buy the rights to a film that you're just going to change 80% of? But anyway, it, it'll be interesting to see what this uh, bankable director does with um, the material. The cast has just been locked down um, today in Korean, uh, according to Korean media. Lee Jung-jae, who was in Assassination and also The Thieves, um, will be just, we take a starring role. Um, uh, by the way, I, ca- I, I can't tell who is in what role because um, from the character description, um, it seems like the director has changed quite a bit, so I can't tell who is playing Lao Shen Wan, who is playing Daniel Wu, and so on and so forth. But anyway, um, uh, so Lee Jung Jae will be in one of Lee Rhodes, and also Kim Woo Bin, who was last seen in uh, Master, um, and uh, Kim Wee Sung, um, who is the bad guy in Train to Busan, if you remember, and also Yong Yong Jung Ah, uh, an actress that uh, well we haven't seen much of, but she was last seen in uh, Cart, which is uh, was a social drama. So the cast been locked down. The film starts shooting in August, um, and they're aiming for a release date of next. August. Uh, Paul, what do you think about this Overheard that won't be like the original Overheard? Well, what's the point? I mean, uh, unless they're, <laughs> unless they're, they're the, the, what did you say? It's going to be like, what, 80% different? Yeah, that's what yeah, they're so un- Unless that, that 20% is Michael Wong reprising his role, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then what's the point, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe 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 they'll surprise us and they'll get somebody like I don't know uh, Choi Min Sik as, as in that role to say in Korean I have my own car right <laughs> well if we have Michael Wong in the Korean remake of Over Her I know at least one listener that would be super excited yes indeed um, <laughs> um but actually you know what the thing is you know I I I'm a bit of two minds about it because some people they think that if a film um is you know remake or an adaptation its quality is judged by how faithful it is to the source material and i always find that a bit ridiculous but at the same time like you said why buy the rights to the film you're going to change most of it um but actually it, it's it's quite interesting because i think the the film quite fits with the current sort of side guys of, of south korea um in recent years uh films about bringing down corrupted figures and, and, and businessmen and government people um, have been quite popular. And, you know, the uh, ouster of uh, President Park Geun-hye, you know, it's just that whole, that, that you know, that whole idea of underdog or ordinary citizens bringing down rich people and powerful people. It just seems more, um, more, more fitting than ever. So it'd be interesting to see how they bring over here and fit it with, with, the sort of current um, South Korean society uh, and the mood at the, of the moment. Right, and I mean this is I mean they've done this kind of stuff before. They did, didn't they do a Better Tomorrow remake? What back in two thousand and ten or or so? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so you know the, this this kind of stuff goes on. I think it's 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 always interesting to see it put in the context of you know another Asian country and their sort of social issues. Rather than just you know porting it over to Hollywood and going through the whole you know whitewashing idea and aspect of it, I, I always find these kind of ports um, much more interesting as something to compare and to watch. Yeah, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, unlike the um, the, the the remake of A Better Tomorrow, Over Her is in much better hands. I mean, we've seen uh, you've seen The Thieves, right, Paul? Which was shot in uh, partly shot in Macau, yeah. So you know what the the director is is very um, he's very you know competent. He's a very um, um, sometimes talented director who makes you know really great commercial film with really great cast. So um, it'll be interesting to see how he does Overheard. All right, all right. I think that's gonna wrap it up for our news this week. We'll take a short musical break and we'll be back with Kevin's review of Vampire Cleanup Department. Chao 
and welcome back. For our East Screen film this week, we've got a Hong Kong film and a film that's from a much-loved genre, at least by myself, uh, that of the vampire genre. Um, so this is Vampire Cleanup Department. Now, Kevin, you'll have to give me some indication, because as I read through your story synopsis, the, these are not the Kyongsi hopping vampires. Are they, are they more like the Western Dracula vampires, or is it a mix-up? I think it's a mix of two. Like I couldn't, ne- I could never. Yeah, actually, they're hopping. Now that okay. I think about it, they're hopping vampires, um, but they bite people. Wait, hopping vampires bit people, right? Yeah, they 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 didn't like bite the neck and drink blood necessarily, but if they bit you or scratched you, it was kind of like you become a, a vampire, it was like a zombie. Yeah, you you basically got the you 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 become vampire but vampirized at some. At oh some yeah, way. okay. Yeah. Okay, this is the old school Hong Kong vampire, uh, hopping, hopping Guernsey, in other words. Um, yeah, so that's this uh, a, a a film by two new directors, um, Anthony Yan and Hang Chiu, um, and it's co-produced by uh, TVB actor Ha Yu. Um, if you if you're familiar with his work, um, but yeah, it's a bit of sort of weird trivia because I think Hayu doesn't even appear in the film, but yeah, he's like one of the uh, sort of the the back support or he's one of the people who who initiated the project. But anyway, the story: um, vampires have been haunting Hong Kongs for centuries, hiding in the city. There's an official special action unit to deal with this vampire plague called the VCD, the Vampire Cleanup Department. One day, nerdy geek Tim is accidentally rescued by the VCD during a vampire attack. Department advisor Uncle Chung, played by uh, Yu Hong, um, or Richard Ng, um, discovers that Tim is not only the son of two former VCD agents, but that he also has immunity against the vampire toxin. Soon, the team teaches Tim everything they know in order to turn him into the next vampire hunter. During one operation, Tim rescues a pretty lady vampire called Summer, played by Malaysian actress Min Chang. He violates his orders and takes her home, which triggers an attack from the vampire king. Alright, honestly, I came back, I was jet-lagged, I slept through part of the film. (laughs) (laughs) But I caught most of it. (laughs) I did see most of it, so I can tell you it is Hopping Vampire. Um, and I can tell you that this has all the makings of a great midnight film. Okay, like, you know, you can bring, it's like a modern version of Mr. Vampire with an urban twist. It could be meta, it's postmodern, and it's kind of like Men in Black, right? With Vampire, which is a great concept, but it's clearly bounded by budget. Um, the result isn't all that scary, all that imaginative, or all that funny. Um, it's not really impressive. It's one of those mid-budget um, film that doesn't really go far enough because you got Malaysia money, so it's got to play in Malaysia. So you have to, you know, a piece of censors, so you can't really do, you can't really go too far. Um, and it feels like a great concept, bit of bit squandered, kind of squandered. Um, of course, the old actors are great. You have, um, like I said, you have Richard Ng. You have uh, Chin Soo Ho playing sort of the 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 the, the senior, the senior uh, vampire hunter. You have um, Yu Chan Yan playing, uh, uh, I guess, what you would call the um, a Taoist priest. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, uh, um, what's his name? Um, a martial arts actor. Forget his name. Um, who plays the sort of the uh, technical support guy? Uh, oh, sorry, Lawmont, Lawmont. That's who is. He's the weapon expert. So these older older actors are really cool to see, um, and and you know that's what brings sort of what in my generation or you know my generation of fanboys into the film, um, and fans of the genre would love seeing them. Baby John, uh, Baby John Choi, he's okay as a star. Um, but there's so much more they could have done with his character. I mean, it's cool already, right? It's kind of like Blade, you know. He's like the, the um, he's an immunity against vampires, and you know he could be like this powerful vampire hunter. But they didn't have a budget to do anything with that visually. So um, he becomes a sort of nerdy romantic lead um, half the time with the uh, the vampire girl, um, who is played by uh, Min Chang, a Malaysian actress. So she speaks Cantonese, but she actually doesn't speak for most of the film. Um, well, let's just say, let's say that she has some assets that will earn her a lot of fans with this film. Hmm. Um, go ahead and look up some photos. <laughs> um, so, so you know, the film has that going for it. Again, it's, it's the problem of world building, right? You have this 
you know, Men in Black-esque thing. You know, you have these guys, a secret department, you know, whose job is to go and clean up vampires and they hunt vampires and they make sure that we don't know vampires exist. But there is, isn't just in there's just not enough of the action or enough the world building to make this a believable concept. I mean, they talk about, you know, budget cutting and, and you know, they have this whole headquarter in a uh, trash in a, what is it, garbage point, I guess, garbage station? Is that what we call it? Yeah. Um, garbage station. But, you know, there's really nothing interesting there. You know, you don't see how they operate. They're, they're telling the story, so you don't actually see one successful mission happen, which is really weird. Um, so, you know, there's not really not enough world building to make this whole um, uh, concept believable. Um, but it would be nice to see a sequel that finally fulfills the potential. Uh, luckily, it doesn't really go out of its way to set one up. It just tells a complete story, and it doesn't have any creepy or, or more powerful villain sneaking in the cave ready to come out. It just sort of it story finishes and it finishes. It's fine, but it you know it does have potential for a sequel. Um, so in the end, it, it is entertaining enough, and you know it follows enough rules of the genre to be to be a film of the genre. Um, but I think it could have been so much more. It's really not the worst thing you see this year, especially if you're into this sort of films, but I don't think it's really worth going out of your way to catch it. Um, like I said, it, it really could have been more, but I think there's just all sorts of factors that prevent it to fulfill sort of its potential, and and that's kind of sad. Um, did I really dislike it? No, I was fine when I was awake. <laughs> um, it was fine. It played okay, but you know the filmmaking isn't perfect. Um, it's not really as imaginative as it could have been. But um, generally, you know, it has you know act- great actors and uh, and, a, and an okay concept to carry the whole thing along. So there you go. It's interesting because as you're describing the film, it brings to mind uh, Wilson Yip's movie Two Thousand and Two. Um, right, with, uh, Nick Say and Stephen Fung, which was it sounds pretty much along those lines. Instead of vampires, they were dealing with ghosts, and it was like a Men in Black style, you know, uh, group within Hong Kong. But they didn't build out the world enough, right? They didn't, they didn't spend enough time. And and I don't know what it is with Hong Kong films now. Maybe it's just the way that production happens differently. But when you go back and you look at the success of the Mr. Vampire films or the Chinese ghost story films, it was like not only did they world build, but they plan things out. I guess maybe because the films were so financially successful, maybe more so than these are. But it was like, you know, all right, film one this year, film two next year, film three the following, you know, a couple years later. And we don't get that kind of thing anymore unless it's got a Vegas to Macau in the title, right? It's like, you know, we never saw anything more from 2002. Um, what was the one with twins? Uh, twins Effect, right? Same kind of idea. You know, there was some world building that happened. They kind of left it open-ended. They could have done more with it. They, they just decided not to return to it for whatever reason. Um, what was the one that was really good this with Nick simple. Chung? You know, uh, Keeper of Darkness, you know, like... Where's that? You know, give us more of that now because, you know, it's like they're just not thinking far enough ahead. I think they're just focusing on the here and now. And they seem to have done a better job of this back in the 90s, right? Well, Nick Chen, Nick Chen, well, Keeper of Darkness did have a sequel set up at the end. Yeah, but, um, we, we, you know, it, it's it's like, where is that? Where Where's... You know, where where's the discussion? Where's the pre-production news coming about that? It's like nowhere on the radar, right? Yeah, well, well, first of all, those films went away because China. You can't have vampire films in China. You can't have zombies. You can't have ghosts in China. So, so, and, you know, t- 2002, which I remember liking at the time, um, that film was a big budget thing. Actually, I mean, that film sort of had, did better with its concept than Vampire Cleanup Department did. Um, at the end of the day, it, it, it's all about, but partly it's because of genre. Right? I think back then, I'm not sure if they had, that they were had the burden of of carrying genres, you know. Back then, I think they sort of were more wild about about you know, what they're trying to do, be more creative, right? Mm-hmm. I think here, I think they feel like they're bound by certain rules of of the genre. They're bound by rules of censorship. They're bound by the budget, and they're bound by so many things that they can't really shake free and do whatever they wanted. Um, and and I don't 
no, honestly, I don't know why. I mean, world building doesn't cost well; it costs money to shoot scenes, obviously, but it doesn't. It wouldn't mess with censors. I mean, you're gonna make a movie about vampires anyway. You know, world building isn't gonna you know make it any worse for the censors if the problem is vampires. Um, but um, you were talking about what else? Keeper of Darkness. Now, Keeper of Darkness, I would like to see a sequel to it. I guess. I mean, it's a good idea, but. Um, Nick Chan has other things in mind, you know, so he'll get to it when he wants to. But he did set up a sequel, so I think, and it did well financially. I think it did okay, well enough. Um, so it'd be interesting to see a sequel to that, and it'll be interesting to see a sequel to this when I mean it did better than I expected in Hong Kong. Not great, but it did better than I expected in Hong Kong. Um, and we might see a sequel. It will be interesting. Um, and hopefully that's when they will kink out some of the problems. But, you know, it's the whole idea of origin films. Um, I think the U.S., as, as tired as we are of origin films, they have that formula down pat. They know how to build things, and they know that they have to bring the audience into the world to make make you buy into it for the next four films. Here, I, I think they were just... I, I'm not sure why why they skimp so much on world building i think because they have other things in mind like they want to do the romance um or or maybe because they think that people are so familiar with this genre that they feel like they didn't have to set it up any further but you know i wanted to see this world i wanted to see how this vampire cleanup department really works why have they survived for so many years how are they effective but no you don't get none of that because they were so it was such a rush to get into baby john says pretty girl with you know, vampire with big breasts. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a shame. I mean, I'm looking forward to this, and it seems like they've been trying to kickstart the vampire genre for a couple years now. I mean, we do have um, Juno Max Rigor Mortis back in 2013, the movie, what was it, Sifu versus Vampire a couple years ago. It just doesn't seem like there's a there's a, a sense of continuity or, or again, a some people trying to think further abroad than um, the, the current film at hand. Hopefully this will pick up some of the slack, and and uh, if it's as good as you say, they'll go further with it because you know, I'm ready for something like that. I'm ready for... I mean, the closest thing that we, we've gotten that kind of fills that, that gap for me, I want to say, is uh, the Detective D films because we're getting another prequel. I'm not a big fan of the prequels because I'd rather see them go further with Andy Lau and kind of where they left off with the first film. But at least, you know, there's some sense of continuation within that world. Yeah, yeah. Um and and unfortunately um what Trey Hark is going the next the next Detective D will be um um another prequel yeah. uh, continuation. So no Andy Lau. And obviously Andy Lau isn't fit to do any yeah. movies right now at the moment anyway unless unless, unless they put detective d in a wheelchair yeah. for the whole he film. can be the he can be the new professor xavier right it's, uh... <laughs> yeah exactly but um no i think you're right i think at least trey hark does the, the the world building thing a bit better i mean um you buy the world i think and that's because you know Trey Hark is the director of unlimited imagination and his imagination shines through in sort of all aspects of the film here you wish that that the um, the people you know you got two directors I think three writers and you hope you know one would hope that they could have found some cheaper way to build that world and they didn't so it's too bad yeah well if this is coming your way um, and you like the vampire genre maybe something you want to check out I know just from the cast alone you know you say a name like Lol Mang or you've got uh, Jim Chim Jim Soyman and Eric Zhang popping up as well as um, Su Yum Yum, right? Yeah, Su Yum Yum in a, uh, as as Baby John's uh, grandmother. Eric Jung's a very brief role, and Jim Chim is one of those blank and you missed it or fall asleep and you miss it kind of role. <laughs> All right, well there you have it. Check it out when it comes your way, and let us know what you thought of Vampire Cleanup Department.
And for our second film review this week, um, kind of in the middle that this hybrid area, I guess, of somewhere between the east and the west, I, I guess, although much more firm in the Hollywood camp this time, comes Ghost in the Shell, the live-action remake of the animated classic film from 1995 that's gone on, based originally on the Masamune Shiro manga and the you know, multiple spin-off series and, and movies and, and what have you from this property. Uh, the story here, Cyborg Officer, a.k.a. Major Mira Killian, uncovers a plot to kill a group of scientists that work for Hanka, a powerful robotics corporation. But as she investigates the case, she begins to unravel a mystery that points to her own fragmented history. Um, now, Kevin, you've seen this, right? Yeah, I did. I did. I saw it last week. Yeah. So we'll 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 get into some of Kevin's thoughts um, in just a moment. But this is the second movie I've seen with a span within a span of about two weeks, with Beauty and the Beast being the first that does this thing. It takes a classic piece of animation and tries to reanimate it with lots and lots of CGI. Um, maybe not quite as much CGI as to the extent that Beauty and the Beast had, but still, nonetheless. Um, this is also a controversial film here. The controversy swirls around the, the cry of whitewashing. And we've talked about this in some of the news segments in previous episodes, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, there are quite a few articles out there that I've read um, from some some very well-written you know blog posts and news articles that really put the handle on this that, yeah, it kind of is there. You know, you just it, it is there, especially when you get into the backstory of the major and the idea of the shell, this sort of white shell that happens to look like Scarlett Johansson, you know, uh, as, as the role. But beyond that, uh, let me just get into the character, because Scarlett here for me just doesn't pull off the role of the major well, um, at least not as how I saw her characterized through the manga or through the through the animes that I've seen. Uh, her major here is flat. It's uh, she's uninteresting rather than being someone. I mean, she's powerful sometimes, but she never seemed quite as powerful as the anime version of the major was. And she's a lot less contemplative. Um, in the anime, the character always came, and, and the manga as well. The always character always came across came across as always being very much in her own head and thinking and less verbal. Um, and perhaps they make her a bit too verbal here getting into you know a bit of touchy feeliness and, and emotions and if that's their take on the character okay it just didn't really work for me um so in the context of how they sort of unravel this story they try to make it okay to have her in this role because again and even i think the original the director of the 95 movies come out and kind of made a statement that yeah you know kind of when you're dealing with the concept of a shell and you know does race really matter but you know when you're dealing with the concept of giving somebody work you know and giving somebody exposure um it does matter you know so we're talking about the difference between identity conceptually within a narrative and identity as it's represented in terms of employment right um so but even so she does just doesn't bring much to the role beyond her name and star power um and i'm not sure that's enough for this you know, for for the movie, and at least in in terms of what I've seen so far, in terms of U.S. box office, apparently it was not enough. Um, they give her a bodysuit that was designed by Weta, and it just looks bulky and rubbery at times. It doesn't feel like synth a synthetic body that she's supposed to have. Um, it doesn't always, you know, because sometimes they're using CGI as her body parts come apart and other times it's just her fighting in this suit and it just it never really works for me um and again it comes back to this idea that we talked about at the start of the show where i think sometimes animation in a two-dimensional sense you know the hand-drawn animation the cell animation can do more right now um, than cgi maybe in another five to ten years or maybe with a different you know artistic design and vision for this um, they could have done something uh, a bit more effective but I was I you know I'll, I'll talk a bit more about the visuals I mean let's go back and look at stuff like um, uh, you know uh, what's, what's 
who's the director of uh, the the music videos? Chris. Chris Cunningham. Chris Cunningham. Yeah. No. You know, you look at his his video for Bjork, right? All is full of love, and that was back in the '90s. And you know, some of the stuff that I saw here doesn't look on par with that. And, and you know, we're here, you know, what a decade and a half, two decades later. Um, so I just was surprised at the the level of effects not really seeming all that great on the big screen. Um, uh, but I'll get a bit more into the visuals because there are some things that, that I did like. Let's talk about the other character who is sort of the other rock of the series, and that is Bato. Um, Bato here is played by, I forget, I can't really say the actor's name. Um, uh, I'll, I'll try Pilau Asbaik, Asbaig. Um, Man, yeah. I'm not, I just did all those Thai names. Yeah. I ain't trying. Norwegian, Norwegian <laughs> actor. Uh, he, you know, you've seen him briefly if you're watching uh, Game of Thrones as one of the Greyjoys. Um, and I didn't like him at first. And part of the reason I didn't like him was because the way he shows up uh, with a certain body part intact, I'm like, what? What are they doing? And they kind of address this. There is a bit of a sort of origin story, quote unquote, that they write in here, um, which is very different from from the anime. And they take some liberties with that. Okay, whatever. But I did. St- he did grow on me by the end because, again, of a bit of the strategic reworking of the story, which helps. But also the dog, the dog. Fans of Ghost in the Shell Innocence will know what I'm talking about. Um, so kudos to them for, for that. Um, the Chief, though. The Chief, yeah, baby. I mean, you can't get better casting than this for The Chief. I mean, um, purely perfect casting in, in my mind um, for, the, for, the, for the person to represent The Chief, none other than, um, you know, uh, Takeshi, uh, beat Takeshi Kitano as uh, Aramaki and... They do a really great thing here. They just let him act. They don't dub him, you know. They don't. Uh, they don't give pull a Johnny mnemonic, and you know, maybe they did, and they they cut out significant amounts of footage, but it didn't feel like it. Um, they just let him act in Japanese, and everybody just reacts to him when they're speaking because why not? It's a science fiction film, and you can do what you want. Um, so a great bit of casting there and kudos on the language choice supporting cast was good the team felt familiar you know um, especially Tagusa played by Chin Han I would have liked to see more of each of them Um, they didn't highlight some of the other team members as much as I would have liked but uh, there was enough that fans are going to recognize the characters it's you know but back to the visuals I mean it's kind of neat seeing Hong Kong as the main skyline run through after effects on an acid trip um, <laughs> because that's kind of what they do but it's still very derivative of the original ghost in the shell and blade runner and what of course one could argue that you know ghost in the shell itself and the hong kong setting that they used it's not in hong kong but they used hong kong as sort of the basis for the for the the drawings um was itself a direct pull from Blade Runner um, back in or, you know eighty two, um, so I was distracted by a lot of that and by looking at you know recognizable buildings and streets and things like that and then equally distracted by the constant layering of things, but I didn't really like the overall art design that is the look they give these, it's you know, sort of a very highly pixelated, almost Minecraft-esque in some ways. I mean, not that bad, but but akin to Minecraft because they have these giant holograms as running advertisements basically everywhere. And while I think that's a neat concept, I just think visually um, it wasn't as interesting as as I thought it could have been. I just, it didn't, didn't really appeal to me all that much. Um, but I was more interested in the street level characters and we didn't get a lot of that, you know, just the average cyborg on the street. Um, you know, there are a couple of encounters. There's an encounter between the major and a human, we assume a sex worker, but you know, it's like, there seems like there should have been more to that scene in the manga. There definitely would have been more to that scene. Um, they don't really get too much into that, into sort of the major's personal life with the anime but that you know that's one of the deeper questions about identity and 
again, sexuality and race, that's all sort of wrapped in this idea of, you know, if you are not the shell that you're in, then what are you? Um, and a couple moments do feel like pulls from other science fiction as well. There were a couple scenes that felt somewhat RoboCop-esque. Um, the, the rebuilding scene that's somewhat reminiscent of uh, the fifth element. Um, and, you know, as, as an overall whole, it feels a bit piecemeal at times, I would say. The action pieces itself were not very inspired. There's some hand-to-hand -hand sequence. There's, there's a couple of gun battles. The final boss fight is kind of directly lifted from the anime um, between, the, you know, the major and this big, and, and in some cases almost shot-for-shot, shot, you know, redos of, of, of these moments. But again, like with Beauty and the Beast and like with some other films that go for sort of these shot-for-shot shot redos, it's just kind of there, you know. It's like, I don't know. I was thinking about it in terms of is it a, is it a case of generation loss? You know, in the old days when you made a copy of a VHS and then you make a copy of a copy, the quality's not quite as good as the original copy, right? And so, I don't know. I mean, it's it's paying homage to the original, but in some ways, but it's definitely not surpassing it in in other ways. Um, the the biggest problem though I have is that the story is just overly simplified in contrast to the anime. I mean. Um, section nine's there, but they kind of do away with section six in place. You have this Hanka Corporation, and I know that a lot of people don't like the original anime because it's so political and it's so in depth and it's very Japanese with, you know, different different governmental sections. I mean, think about Shin Godzilla, right, and what that was doing in terms of kind of showing and highlighting Japanese politics. Ghost in the Shell kind of does that in some ways um, in the 95 anime because it's so overly convoluted in terms of, you know, sections and bureaus and, and different political motivations. Here they simplify everything and it's just, you know, a big bad corporation and a, a bad boss and, a, you know, a, a bad guy that you think is a bad guy and you kind of know, again where that's going but then they throw in this very simple backstory that neatly ties everything up with the major and I think that's where it's really going to fall apart for uh, a lot of anime fans and a lot of people who are looking at again the whitewashing argument when they get into that sort of backstory argument um, so for fans of the anime there's really not much here that's new or exciting um, you know it's okay to see some of these scenes redone um, but some of them don't hold up. They were okay, uh, but that's not necessarily a good thing given the source material. For fans of Hong Kong, I think you'll be drawn to it watching the backgrounds. I mean, a lot of times as they're racing through the streets, I'm more interested on the streets than, you know, some, some of the action. Um, and, you know, as a result, it's just kind of this bland entry into the, another, you know, another an animation to live action kind of genre. And it may be good for folks like my parents who have no knowledge of the anime and would probably never watch it. And Laz with Beauty and the Beast, it may lead some younger generation viewers to say, hey, you know, that was pretty interesting. Oh, this it's based on a cartoon? Let me go check the cartoon out and let me see where that leads me. You know, maybe to the manga or to some of the spin-off series. And and hopefully this happens because if, if it does do that, then I think that's... A, a very very good thing um, so enough of my ranting on this let me uh, throw the ball over to Kevin and see his take because I, I don't think he's quite as much into the the anime or or that side of it as I am yeah I, I've never seen the anime so I I'm sort of the latter I think uh, I would like to watch the anime now although I'm not really rushing to see it to be honest so I'm a bit of part of the a bit of a first and a bit of a second um but I, I found the whole thing a bit like it was really drawn out. No, no, I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It, the whole thing a bit simplified. So I was, I, I'm agree with your point that the whole thing really simplified. The story isn't really all that exciting. And Rupert Sanders, he's so obsessed with the the cyberpunk and the the technology and using practical effects and all the visuals that I don't think he he's a very good storyteller. 
Um, it wasn't really that well told, or the story itself wasn't that interesting. There wasn't any personality to the characters. Um, uh, but you're right, uh, Kitano was awesome. Kitano was just doing Kitano. Although he, his, I speak Japanese, so I could tell his Japanese dialogue doesn't really sound like normal people speak. Like he doesn't really put any expression into his his lines and you could tell because his lines sounds a bit stilted mm. but anyway that's a bit of sort of a small small uh nitpick but um Scarlett Johansson he I don't think she has a handle on the character because even the script doesn't really have a handle on the character um they don't even know what to do with her and um not a real spoiler but if if there's any indication of her former self um, let's just say in the in the in this major character, where's the personality? Where's the human side of it? And and um, a weird thing is, you know, at the end, you know, or or they repeat this line a couple of times, and it's taken straight off Batman Begins, right? It's not, you know, it's what we do that defines us. And you realize at the end of the film, uh, that's not exactly the message here. Like it's really weird because the whole film talks about identity and and memory and 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 things like that, and yet at the end it's like it's what we do that defines us. Uh, no, the whole thing has been about memories and clinging onto memories. So what the hell are you talking about? Um, so that's a bit odd, and you do not want to be watching this movie in Hong Kong because you got audiences who won't shut up in the middle of the film about about you know places they recognize and they won't <laughs> STF you about it. It's really annoying and and it's just terrible. So I think you 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 got the better end of the deal there, Paul. Not only did it flop, so there clearly, you know, you get empty theaters. You won't have people pointing out places that they can recognize. So it's great. Um No, I was the guy pointing out I've been there. I know that place. No. <laughs> Oh, did not want to watch this movie, you Paul. No, kidding, kidding, <laughs> kidding. Um, it, it, otherwise, you know, I didn't hate it, but I didn't particularly like it. You know, it's just very average. I think it's a free star kind of thing. It did. I, I understand that the story has been changed quite a bit from the uh, the anime. Um, so if I was just basing this story, and I think that the or if I try to assume that the anime has a similar story, I would not want to see it. Um, but. You know, once I hear that, oh, it's a different story, a more a more complex story, <clears throat> then okay, maybe I would like to check it out. Um, but otherwise, this film is just not very inspiring of any sort of um, uh, reaction, which is kind of sad because there's so much, I think, so much effort put into creating a look that you wish they would put even more effort into creating, you know, making the whole thing more entertaining or the whole thing a bit more attitude, you know what I mean? Um, there just isn't really an attitude in this film. It just sort of does its thing and then shows off its effects and then that's it. So, yeah, I didn't really like it that much. I didn't hate it. And honestly, I don't have a big, big deal about the whitewashing issue. Um, I think like the original, you know, uh, manga's creator said yeah you know it, it's about shell so you know, why not put it in a white shell oh um and and the the, the city it's a un, sort of unnameless city in an unknown country and they speak in english so you know it's it's not that bad it's not that big big of a deal so it's my only problem with that is it's not that great of a film rather than any other sort of you know ratio or you know reason behind it Listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily LoveHKFilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, get in touch with us via our website at Concast.com or find us over on Twitter, that's Twitter.com at Concast. Email us at EastScreen at gmail.com and find us over on Facebook at EastSWestS. 
As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing, including da -da -da -da, his brand new website, which he's mentioned previously and has just been rolled out. Kevin, give us some more details on that. Well, you can find uh, my website, Asia in Cinema, at uh, asiaincinema.com. Um, you can follow the Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Asia in Cinema, and of course the Twitter account, uh, twitter.com slash um, Asia in Cinema. Uh, recognize the really awesome geometrical logo um, that uh, my friend, um, an illustrator, did. And uh, you can also read my work on Discovery Magazine on uh, Cathay Pacific Airways uh, and also Silk Road Magazine on Silk Road. Uh, sorry, on Cathay Dragon Airlines. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at um, www.twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. That's one word, thegoldenrock. Or you can email me. Now it's a e new email address. You can email me at kevin at asiaincinema.com. Excellent. Our next show, episode 222, I think, Kevin, you'll be talking about the Sean U vehicle Mad World, right? Yes, that's right. And I hope to get out to see the Anne Hathaway kaiju movie, Colossal. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, ghost or vampire, you decide, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody.